There we go. See, that joke would have been funnier if my mic was on. That's the, that was the problem there. The, uh, but in, in Acts chapter 25, we're going to pick up here. We're going to do something a little bit. Oh, I have an announcement. I almost forgot. I was supposed to say this before I started. Uh, we have kids' class is going to be open starting every week starting next month. So right now we have, uh, this month we had blackout periods. And we have in the past, we don't have enough workers. But it sounds like we have enough workers now. So it'll be open uh, every, every week. Okay. So uh, what I was saying was we're going to do something a little bit different today. Uh, most of you that know me uh, know or have kind of been around this church or Calvary Chapel much is that the, the, one of the hallmarks typically is kind of verse-by-verse verse teaching. So um, we're, for time's sake today, I'm going to make a summary because this is another passage. Remember last week we had communion with Psalm 103, and, but the week before that we covered two, two chapters and the chapters, are, they're put together in such a way where you have kind of this narrative that to break up the narrative, I think, would be confusing and, off, and just kind of end up in a lot of repetitive uh, statements. In, in, in uh, chapter 25 and part of 26, Paul's going to give his testimony again. Uh, we've already read it three times in Acts. And so, but I want to make it upfront and clear. I'm not saying this is not worth reading. I'm not saying that we shouldn't read this. I'm just saying that for our sake, because we've been going through this fairly detail-oriented, in a fairly detail-oriented way, that I'm not going to read all this. I'm going to summarize it. So if you remember two weeks ago where we left off, and for context's sake, it says there in Acts chapter 24 and in verse uh, 20, uh, yeah, 27, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now, to kind of put ourselves in that position or in that vein, uh, think about that for a second. Felix, whose wife is Drusilla. Drusilla is a descendant of the Maccabees. You might have heard of the Maccabean revolt. His, uh, her, her sister is Bernice, who is going to be later on in chapter 26, who is both the sister and the wife of Herod Agrippa II. Okay? So we're getting into some weird Roman thing. You heard me correctly. That Bernice is the blood sister, the daughter of Herod Agrippa I, and the wife of her brother, Herod Agrippa II. So Herod the Great, I think we have, do we have that, that thing? I forgot my pointer. So Herod the Great, he has a bunch of sons. He has a bunch of wives. They're not all listed up there. He has the vast majority of his family executed over time because he was very paranoid about power and so forth. Herod the Great is the Herod that had all the children in Nazareth slain. Okay, that's, that's Herod the Great. Uh, then, he has, then you have his son, Herod Agrippa I, and Herod Agrippa I is the, the, the Agrippa in the beginning of Acts that has James beheaded. Okay, So in chapter 26, where we're going today, you have Herod Agrippa II. So Herod Agrippa I, the, his, these are his three, he has other children, but Agrippa II, Bernice, and Drusilla. So she is the wife of Felix. So this is a little bit of a family tree. It's, this is for context's sake. And, and I promise you it'll play in. Uh, it's not just that James likes history, although I do. But to, to bring in and to hopefully uh, appreciate some of this so that we can absorb uh, some of the attitudes and the things that Paul says into our own lives as we move forward uh, trying to be part of God's kingdom. So it's, it's a very word. Bernice uh, is, is t- we're told that Bernice is a uh, woman of great lasciviousness, uh, lasciviousnessness, that she, lots of lascivious stuff going on. Basically, she was given to excess in every part of her life. And so she ends up, again, with her brother. Um, she was also... So Felix marries, marries Drusilla. The reason Drusilla marries Felix, who becomes uh, a governor, he was a slave that became a governor, right? She marries Felix because Bernice, her sister, the brother and wife of Herod Agrippa II, is so jealous of her beauty... That, she's, that Bernice, the older sister, is persecuting her all the time. This is, this is obviously extra-biblical uh, um, history. Bernice was rumored to be so beautiful that her beauty was essentially renowned throughout the Roman Empire. Or, I'm sorry, not Bernice, but, uh, but uh, Drusilla. 
And so she was so beautiful that Bernice persecuted her every way she could until the point that she leaves the, the home of Herod Agrippa I and marries Felix, who is known to be, again, also a very lascivious and a very violent and a very angry person. So Felix is removed from power. That's what verse 24 is about. Sorry, chapter 24 and verse 27. Felix is removed by the Roman government, and I don't know if it came down from Caesar to, to Herod to him, but Felix is removed by the Roman government because he was so violent and he was basically just executing people in terrible ways left and right. And there was a rise and uprising in the Jews and other people in Caesarea, and Felix addressed that by essentially just annihilating hundreds and hundreds of people. And so that came to the Roman government. Remember, they want peace in their, even though you're conquered, <laughs> they want you to be peaceful having been conquered. So they say, no, you're, you're bad, you're out. So they, they get Felix out. So it's in this backdrop, all this craziness, Paul knows this, these are known national truths, you know, these are things, these aren't hidden in the dark. These are things that every Roman knows, anybody who's been around knows that that's who these people are. And so Felix, on his basically swan song, leaving his governorship of Judea, he decides to leave Paul in prison for two years. So remember, four times, even, even by the Pharisees, four times, every single time there's been a court or a pseudo-court or a pseudo-gathering of the Sanhedrin, every single time the end consensus is this guy is innocent of any wrongdoing that he should be executed. And yet he's left in prison for a favor. How much does a, a person's life matter? Right? How, what, what worth... Does Felix or Agrippa or Bernice or Drusilla or Agrippa II or the first or Herod the Great, how much do they value a life? None, virtually. They spend, if you read, your, if you read Josephus and other historians, they spend their entire lives jockeying for power. That's what they all do. They essentially, like, for example, Felix, he attaches himself. You know, he grows up with Claudius, and then he's set free, and he becomes a governor, all these things. And he aligns himself with whoever he thinks gives him the best shot of making a lot of money and having the most power. That's the only thing they care about. And so Paul, on the whim of a favor, is in prison for two years. And so I want to stress that and kind of lay that out because I think, personally, that would make me upset if that happened to me. I remember one time being, uh, and I, I'm, a, I'm a proponent of the police. I have a brother-in-law who's been uh, in the FBI for like 20-something years. I have an aunt who retired out of sheriff's department. I have the utmost respect for police officers. But I remember one time in Santa Barbara, I was just cruising along. I was, it was me and uh, two friends. One guy was from Brazil. Another guy was my roommate. And we were in Santa Barbara, and we were just coming from a gospel revival meeting. Yeah, no drinking, no nothing, gospel revival meeting. We got pulled over, and we got hassled to no end. And it was, it was this long thing. It was that all officers are not like that. I'm not saying that. Please don't come away with James hates police. James does not hate police at all. But in this particular night, for whatever reason, this guy had a beef, and he took it out on us. And we were there for like an hour, and we got hauled out of the car, and we got all this crazy stuff. It was, it was so wild. And after that, I drove away, and I was so angry. I was so mad because they had violated our rights. One of them, because I was, I was talking, there were two, an officer each side of the, the door, and I re leaned over because the Brazilian guy was having trouble understanding what the officer was saying, and I leaned over, and the officer on my side goes, hey, you look at me. And so I drove away from there, and I called my aunt, and I go, you would not believe what just happened to me from the highway patrol. And so she goes, you need to call the sergeant, and you need to find out the dispatch, and you need to find out who did it. So I went, and I did that. And I talked to the, the sergeant who was on duty at that time, and she says, we have no recollection of that license plate ever being pulled over. So he never even called it in. He ripped a sticker off the back of my license plate, so I had to go replace it and pay 70 bucks in California. I was so angry. I was fuming mad because my rights had been violated. I hadn't done anything to get pulled over. 
I hadn't done anything illegal at all in any of it. And that was just one time. That was an hour of my life. Now, if I translate that to think of Paul, and I'm going to read it again. I'm not saying all officers are like that. I'm saying that I had one bad experience. I've had a lot of very positive experience in my younger years, getting pulled over a ton of times. And they were very happy and very kind. It was, it was no big deal. You know, I got my tickets and thank you. They said have a good night and I deserved it. It was great. So I'm not at all making any assertion about that. I'm just making the point that I think especially us who, t- who you like to chuck tea into harbors, the mere idea that our rights would be violated is inconceivable. And not just inconceivable, we'll go to the death for it. It's, it's just something that's ingrained inside of us as a, as a culture. And here's Paul. He didn't get pulled over. He didn't get, a, uh, get cost 70 bucks to get a little renewal stamp of, that his registration was valid. He got left in prison for two years. So it's radical. This is very radical. Very outside of our experience for most of us. He's going to speak to Festus. Remember, Festus takes over for Felix. He's going to speak to Festus, and Festus historically is known as being as, as a fairly just governor. But remember, it's when he comes and Festus arrives, three days after his arrival, the Jews, this is chapter 25, the Jews are going to show up. They're literally waiting. They're going to show up, and they're going to say, hey, we need you to bring Paul down to Jerusalem because they've already hatched a plot. Now that Festus is there, that they're going to kill him again. So Festus says, no, you know what? He needs to be tried here. We're going to do it in Caesarea. So you make sure you go up to Caesarea, and I'll meet you there, and we'll do the trial up there. So the Jews say, oh, okay. So they go up there, and they make a ton of accusations. and They're called serious accusations, and they deserve death, the penalty for which would be death for him. And then Paul he begins to, he, he, he talks to Festus in this court and he says, look, you, these things aren't true. They've been proved to be untrue over and over again. And then he says, look, I am on trial. He says that again, we've already read this. I'm on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the gospel. That's why I'm here. Festus in, in 25, chapter 25, verse 20 admits he has no idea how to deal with this argument. He's not a Jew. His wife is, is, is somewhat is, I guess as practicing Jew as you can be is in, in the Roman government. She is a, she's of Jewish descent, Maccabean descent. And, and he wants to satisfy her. He wants to satisfy the Jews. He, he's trying to do what all these people do. Make sure that their power and their money are consolidated. And then justice comes second. So Festus gets and admits to King Agrippa, I have no idea in verse 20 how to handle this dispute. I don't know how to do this. I don't understand this. And Agrippa comes back with and says, you know what? I want to hear this guy. I want to hear what this guy has to say. And so they, they arrange a trial. And, 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 and just imagine this for a second. So in Caesarea, there's 5,000 Roman soldiers that were garrisoned there. And for every uh, uh, thousand soldiers, there's a tribune. It's, it's a Greek word that's really hard to pronounce. But it's, it's literally a Greek word that just means over 1,000. So in, in, our, in chapter 25, when it says that there, the, the, the tribunes were there, it means that for, there was essentially the Roman officer that was in charge of 1,000 soldiers. So there's five of them there, five of these tribunes. There's Festus. He's there, the governor of the Judean area. Then you have Herod Agrippa II and his sister and wife, Bernice. And they show up, it makes the, in, in, the, in chapter 25, it makes the point. They show up in 26 with all the pomp and all the circumstance. They come in with, with all the riches, right? So if you're Paul, you literally walk into this Roman court and you see King Agrippa, who's not Caesar, but he's a ruler over the area for Caesar. He's put in place by Caesar. And so you have King Agrippa, who you know is radically immoral, who's radically violent. And if you even give any credence to his family history, all his aunts and uncles have been executed by his grandfather. Most of his grandfather's wives have been executed. This is your home life, right? Your home life is like, oh, really? Okay, he executed his own sons. Okay, yikes, glad I survived. I mean, this is a pretty radical home life. So you're Paul, you walk in. You see Herod Agrippa II. You see Bernice, his lover and sister. 
You see Festus, the governor, who doesn't give a rip about you and was trying to offer you up to the Jews. Festus wanted to do the Jews a solid and tried to get Paul to go back to Jerusalem for a trial so that he could have Paul killed. And that's when Paul says, no, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I kind of mixed the order. Forgive me for that. This is where Paul says, no, I appeal to Caesar. And that's where Festus says, hey, Agrippa, I need you to help me here because I don't even know what to write to Caesar about what this guy appealed about because he hasn't done anything to actually break Roman law. And then Agrippa says, I want to hear this. And that's what Paul walks into. All the tribunes, all this. It's weird enough when you walk into court and there's one judge and you know that that judge has a constitution he has to follow, and you know that that judge has, he's elected, and he can be removed. You know, there's, I'm not saying injustice doesn't happen in our court system, but it's significantly less than what the most of the, the, the known world suffers from right now. And so you walk into a court where you know none of these people care about me, none of these people have a, any kind of, well, I shouldn't say none, very little check and balance, if Herod Agrippa says, you know what, I'm bored, cut him in half, guess what happens to you? You get cut in half. And nobody does anything about it. It's just done. If Festus says, you know what, I'm tired of this guy, let's round up some lions, let's just chuck him, we'll have some sport, we'll invite the Jews, they'll appreciate it, there'll be peace, I'll be able to prosper in Caesar's eyes. That's what happens to you. So Paul walks into that kind of a courtroom. He's literally hopeless as it pertains to this world. And that's why I'm explaining all this. Not because I'm trying to belabor a point or make up content or something like that. Trust me, I could talk all day. But so that we can, <laughs> so that we can understand where he's at and look at and understand, and I'm not making predictions here, that's where we're going. And I think we need to understand that. That as Christians, we're moving closer and closer to a place in our country, the United States of America, where we're not going to see justice. And our hope, and when I say hope, I mean our expectation, what gives us peace, what gives us joy, what makes us expectant for good things. Our hope cannot be in any level of government whether it's local courts or Festus the governor or King Agrippa or Caesar. And I'm not saying to disdain them or to hate them or to rebel. We'll talk way more about that because that's where Paul goes. It's pretty awesome where Paul goes with this. But to realize that we actually are heavenly citizens. Now, we go to jobs and we make money and we, we provide and we do so. I am not making any negative statements about living in the U.S. or about the U.S. or about the government. I want that to be very clear. My goal here is not to malign anyone or to take any side politically or anything. I will say, as an opinion, in my limited travels, and I very am limited travel, I've been to Mexico, I've been to Canada, I've been to France, and I've been to England. Those are the places I've been in my life. And of all the countries, and the, other than Mexico, they're all first world countries that I've been to. And I will say, as my opinion, this is the best place in the world to live, based on freedoms and stuff like that. Having said that, this is not my home. And it's not your home. We're citizens of heaven. So we live here, we occupy here, we're involved here, we vote our conscience here, we do what the law provides for us to do. But ultimately, our trust and our hope and these things are not in any system that our country or any other nation on the planet can provide for us. And so it's important to see as we look at Paul, his attitude as he's speaking and working with people, these, that he's kind to them, that he's respectful to them. But that his priority with them, yes, he says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. Are you really allowed to scourge me? And they're like, oh, no, no, we are not. He uses his rights. He uses his citizenship. And he appeals to Caesar when it looks like Festus is going to have him killed by the Jews. And he says, whoa, 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 I appeal to Caesar. And as a Roman citizen, you had the right to say, Caesar will hear my case. Did he hear every case? No. But you had the right basically to be sent to Rome and then 
you technically had the right to do it, but he still didn't see everybody who said that, if that makes sense. So he says, no, I appeal to Caesar. So he uses his rights again to make sure that he's not slain by the Jews or given over to their will. So nobody's saying ignore your rights or rights are stupid or anything. Nobody's saying that. We're just saying that we use what we can, but it's for the kingdom's benefit. Because the priority of our lives as Christians, the priority of our existence is not to maintain a great nation. We would love to. But first and foremost, our priority is to build a kingdom of God. And that's what Paul's doing. And so what we see in chapter 26, where we're going to pick up, is when Paul, we're going to start right after Paul has given his testimony for about the third or fourth time, which is why I didn't read it. But he gives his testimony to Agrippa, and then he's going to start and speak to Agrippa personally. Festus kind of chimes in. But that's where we pick up, where we see this example of Paul, and we see the same example in Jesus, and and we'll get to that, of, of how we can be in America in the United States, but we're still citizens of heaven. It says there in chapter 26 and verse 19, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. He's talking about when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. But declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said should come to pass, that Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to people, uh, both to our people and to the Gentiles. And he's right. When he says there that he has... Uh, the, the, uh, in verse 21, he says, that, uh, for this reason the Jews seize me. If you remember, every single time that he speaks to the Jews, Paul does, they're all really open to hear him. Multiple times, whether it's at the, uh, the top of the stairs in Ephesus or you know, wherever it is, whenever he goes, he's talking, and he talks about the, the law, then he talks about Christ fulfilling the law, he talks about Christ being the Messiah. Remember, they always sit and listen to him. They're like, oh, okay, and they, they talk about it, whatever. But every single time, as soon as he says, and God sent me to the Gentiles, that's where they're like, kill that fool. Kill that guy. We can, he does not deserve to live. So that's what he's saying. He's like, hey, I've been all along saying these things, but it's every time I talk about the Gentiles that they want to kill me, right? So he's going to, he, he acknowledges that to Agrippa. He talks about that God called him, and then that's what he's doing, but he's not breaking Roman law. Verse 24, and as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus but I'm speaking true and rational words. So this is something I want to take note of. It's kind of the beginning of really what I want to talk about today, kind of in light of the introduction. So Festus interrupts him and says, you're crazy, Paul. It was widely known historically among the Jews and Pharisees and whatnot that Paul was very intelligent. He had a very brilliant mind, and you can see that from a lot of his writing, how technical it is when he lays out the gospel and Romans, all those type of things. And so Festus says, you have, you're so smart, you, you're crazy. All your learning and study, it's just made you crazy. Now, for the Roman culture, the, the idea of resurrection from the dead, remember, that's not a thing. Like, you drop a couple coins on someone's head and you send them down river to go meet, you know, whatever their version of raw was. So it's, just, it's, it's the idea that you have this resurrection life it's crazy to them. And so Festus just rejects it and says, you're crazy. This idea of resurrection is crazy. Now, what does Paul say? And this is important. He says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. He doesn't say, listen, you stupid governor. Right? He doesn't say, you're so lame. To hell with you for calling me crazy about what, about what the gospel is. I know God and you don't. You're going to the hot place. I'm going to the glory. How does that feel, Festus? I mean, it would have got him there a lot faster, for sure. But it's important to note because there's something inside of us, many of us, myself included in that number, where somehow we think 
that it's okay and that it's good to rail on people. Like somehow, somehow we think that if I rail against Jay Inslee for his new mask mandate, or if I rail against Governor Inslee for the fact that I, you know, he's going to try to require people to get a vaccine, that that's somehow just, that that's somehow the right thing to do. And it's noteworthy, and we're going to see more of this, that Paul does not rail. He does not rage. He doesn't start sending hashtags like crazy. Right? He says, no, I'm not crazy. Most excellent Festus. He's kind to him. And he's going to go further than that. And some of you might make the argument and say, well, you know, he's just trying to not get killed on the spot. Maybe, except that he goes on. And he says there, for verse 26, For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped, uh, excuse me, has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Agrippa was also of Maccabean descent, obviously, since his brother and sister were. And so he was, in a sense, Jewish by blood. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might be such as I am, except for these chains. So he's talking to Agrippa and he says, he goes, you know the prophets. You're familiar with the prophets. And he was. He was well learned. And then he says, I know that you know all these things about the way. He's saying, like, I know that you saw this. I know you know who Jesus is. I know Festus wasn't around for that. But he says, I know that you know who Jesus is. I know that none of this has been done in a corner or in the shade. You know what's been going on, this resurrection from the dead of Jesus. And so it's interesting because in the, the way the Greek wording is, essentially what's happening is uh, King Agrippa makes a sarcastic joke. That's what he's doing. Because he's human, right? When we get convicted or when we find something that we really can't argue with or something's really bothering us, what do we do? We just repent and be humble. No, we use sarcasm. And we reject it. That's literally what he's doing. He's like, oh, are you trying to convert me so soon? <laughs> That's what Agrippa's doing. But Paul's response is outstanding because it reveals his heart, the heart of Christ. He says, no, whether it took a long time or a short time, I wish you were like me, except you didn't have these chains that I have. And I think for me, and maybe some of you, if you can identify with this, we kind of work in the opposite way. When we're oppressed, when our rights are violated, when we're not vindicated as we should be in a relationship or with the law or wherever it might be, we say, I wish you were chained and to hell with you. But Paul is completely the opposite. He looks at Agrippa sitting next to his lover sister and he says, I wish you had faith in Christ. I wish you knew the forgiveness that God has for you. And I wish Festus knew. And I wish every tribune here, over a thousand soldiers that's with me, I wish they knew. Because I wish everybody that heard me had the faith that I have in Christ. But I, I, I don't want these chains for you. In other words, he says, I love you. And I want the best for you. And I don't desire these chains for you. But I don't know if it's American society or if it's, I don't know what it is. But I just know that Pretty much everybody I know is the opposite. We're, we're, we're like, and this is just stuff that I've heard. I'm not making any accusations about people here because I really try to stay out of everybody's business. But I've watched and read so much on the internet and in papers and in, on TV where Christians are condemning and they're cursing Jay Inslee. You and your stupid bleepity bleep masks. And they're raging and, and I think we think like Jesus is going to come back and be like, dude, I hated Jay Inslee so much. I'm so glad that you set him in his place and publicly maligned him. I'm so thankful. I was going to do it, but I was a little busy with other things. <laughs> Isn't it weird how we think, even though the Bible says, don't speak evil of people. Love your enemies. We're like, well, he doesn't mean Jay Inslee with masks. I mean, <laughs> clearly that guy's free game. See, we have, to make, we have to do a priority check. What do we really believe? What do I really believe? Do I really believe that Jesus wants me to love my enemy? 
that he wants me to do good to my enemy? Or do I believe that Jesus wants me to come to church, vote right, and then slander everybody I don't like who disagrees with me? What is our heart? Do we look at Jay Inslee or Trump or Biden or whoever your hero is on this earth and say, I wish that you were like me in my faith. I want you to be saved. I just, I don't want chains for you. I don't want this to happen to you. This is a complete switch in our thinking, isn't it? Because our whole life in our nation, and injustice is good. Nobody's saying that justice is bad. But even in, in Ezekiel, in, in, uh, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, in a letter to Timothy, the, the, the prophet and, Tim, and, and Paul both say, the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Think about that for a second. Do you remember when the video came out of... Um, oh, what's his name? Being uh, the, the sheet guy. Anyway, Osama bin Laden being hung. Remember that when he, he got back and... Remember that video? Saddam Hussein. Yeah, that's right. When Saddam Hussein was hung, they had a, there was a video and it went around the, the, and he, he got cat, basically got given back and they hung him. I remember that. And I remember being in a room when that video came out and I remember people just being like, Yes! Yes! Justice! I'm all for justice. And I don't think it was wrong that he was hung. The, 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 the death penalty is implicated, and not implicated, but is, is implemented in the Old Covenant. And it's reinforced in Romans chapter 13. So I don't have a problem with the death penalty. But not even God rejoiced when he was slain. The, the Father didn't turn to the Son and the Holy Spirit and have like a trio high five. Finally, we get to judge that guy. To hell with him. I hate that guy. That's how we think. We can rejoice in justice. Thank God that a man that dipped people in acid got justice. But man, I wish he could have been like me in my faith and not have to have that punishment. You see the difference? One is rejoicing in justice because we love justice. Justice protects us. Justice is of God. We don't hate people. And the Bible says, don't malign people. I want to encourage you. If you're publicly maligning our government and our governor, you are sinning. And I don't say that out of anger or wrath or vengeance. I'm saying it because it's what the Bible says. If you say, I disagree with the policies of this particular administration, God bless you in that. If you say, you know what, I'm going to make sure that when this comes around, I'm going to vote against that. God bless you in that. But vote against it and then love the people you're voting against. Right? Vote against abortion, love abortion doctors, and say, I wish you were like me. I wish you get saved. But if you're going to continue this, there will be justice. But I want the best for you. It's so important that Paul is, is staring Agrippa, one of the most immoral, rancid humans that we could read about in history. And he says, I don't want you to be in chains. I want you to get saved. Because see, we're coming to those times. Times of injustice. Times where you're going to be accused Times when teaching your kids that Jesus is Lord is going to be morally wrong. Times where people will hate you for that. They already do. But more and more, the government's going to get involved. And this is not a boo-hoo, wham-wham, feel sorry for us message. This is not, this, I'm not angry. My wife always tells me, uh, James, you, come off, you can come off angry. You're really intense. <sighs> I'm not angry. <laughs> I'm not angry. You know, I'm, not, I'm really not. I'm excited and I'm grieved because I know from what I've seen and read that the vast majority of our Christian culture is based on maligning our leaders if we don't like them. It's just the truth. And it's wrong. And I wonder often if we maligned less and hated less and loved more, if our world would be a little different, if our church would be different universally. If we said, you know what, hey, we're not necessarily voting for those things. But man, I love Joe Biden. Man, I love that guy. I hope the best for that guy. 
I hope, his, I hope he continues in mental faculty. And I hope if he doesn't know Jesus, that he receives Jesus. And, and if he receives Jesus, that he listens to whatever the Holy Spirit has for him. I love that guy. Jesus loves Jay Inslee. And he loves Joe Biden. And he loved Donald Trump. And he loved Mike Pence. No matter what divide we're in, he loves them both. He loves the other camp. And he wants to give them joy and peace. And he cares about them. He's tender towards them. He's slow to anger to them too. Praise God that that's his nature, is who he is. So we as Christians, our decision has to be which kingdom is more important. Because we're not going to save both. We're just not. I mean, you literally, in our backyard in Portland, I've been reading as much as I can about that. You literally had Christians, women and children, getting sprayed with mace by Antifa, getting slammed to the ground with their shields over a public Christian meeting. Portland PD was there. It's verified. They were there. They watched it. They knew it. And they did nothing. Do you know why they did nothing? Because that is the mandate of their mayor. To do nothing. The mayor mandated. It doesn't matter if you see Antifa beating the poo out of women and children. You do not help them. It's here, guys. It's here. And that's okay. Because Jesus told us that's what's coming. So we don't like it. We don't endorse it. We can vote against it. We do not hate Antifa. We say, I wish you had the faith like me. I don't want you to be chained. Do I want you to stop abusing people? Yes, I do. Am I going to vote in a way that could possibly stop that from happening? Yes, I am. Am I going to hate you for it? No, I'm not. Because God loves you. He doesn't want you to feel like you have to wear a mask and be violent for identity. He doesn't want you to lash out and to hate the, the misery of the sin of hatred and the guilt and the shame that every one of those people must bear. God says, I want to deliver you from that through Jesus Christ. So please don't ever walk out of here thinking I'm saying what they're doing is okay or that, whatever. I say it's okay because we're going to be just fine. We might go to prison. We might be assaulted. We might feel pain. We're going to be just fine because the Lord's with us and he has great things for us. He'll take care of our children. We don't have to worry about those things. Jesus gave us a really similar example. And it says there, if you wouldn't mind flipping over to Mark chapter 12. I think that the exciting part of all of this, the positive of all of this, is that you and I, because we have the Holy Spirit, we have the remedy for everything. We have the remedy for every dilemma in the world. And so even though that the government could crack down, even though we might be despised by people, the, the gospel cannot be stopped. You know, one of the interesting things about Paul's imprisonment, just think for a second, if you haven't already, what would have happened if Paul was released and not kept in jail by Felix? He would have been killed. Two years pass, and three days after Felix leaves power, Festus comes into power, and that day, basically, a few days after that, the Jews come and try to get Paul killed. So what if Felix had just been like, yeah, just go back on, just go on, just go on out? Probably would have been killed. But instead, he ends up in a Roman garrison with unheard of rights. Remember, Felix said, don't stop anybody from coming to him. Don't stop anybody from helping him. Make sure everything gets provided for him. He literally has and lives with more freedom than the average citizen in Rome, except he's confined. But he's perfectly safe. He's able to write letters. He meets with anybody who wants to meet with him and talk about the gospel. He gets to influence Felix and Festus and Bernice and all these, these, these just wild people and their belief systems. Even in his imprisonment, he had a radical ministry for Christ. See, the government can't stop you. 
Like, I, I, don't, I, I really wrestled with how to say and how to talk about this because I don't ever want to come across like I hate the U.S. I don't hate the U.S. I don't ever want to come across like, like all authority sucks. It doesn't suck. But I just hope that I'm communicating well that our mission doesn't start and end with our government. It's like, here's the government and what they're doing, because they're going to do what they're going to do, whoever's in the Oval Office. And like, here's what we're doing with Christ. And every time we malign or rage or lash out or walk in sin, we just tear ourselves down. And we cease from doing what's really important, which is his kingdom. You know, one of the things that was really amazing about this uh, VBS we did, and one of the things it reminded me of, is you talk to some of these kids, and there's people in our church that have had very similar experiences, but you talk to some of these kids, and if they open up a little bit about their family life, some of them, it's horrible. They live horrible family lives. A lot of these kids do. And when I was with the fire department like 80 pounds ago, you know, one of the things that we did is we do uh, Toys for Tots on the peninsula. It was actually really cool because they would sign up at the uh, CCAP, it was CCAP, or I can't remember where they, no, uh, DSHS, they sign up, parents could sign up for their kids, they couldn't afford presents and stuff like that. And then um, one of the fire guys, Jeff Archer, he would dress up like Santa Claus. And so we had all the kids' names and stuff like that, and we'd drive, we'd go over in the fire truck, and the lights are on, the kids come running out, and they, we'd know their names because we had them on a list. So, uh. But we'd know their names. And so Santa would jump out and be like, ho, 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 Chris, look what I have for you in my bag, and whatever, it would be gifts. It was cool to be able to do that. I understand there's not necessarily a lasting, eternal benefit from that. But one of the things that I loved about it and that helps me personally in my, in my ministry is that you would go to homes where when I went on mission trips like Tijuana, they lived better there, literally. I've been to homes on the peninsula with kids that are in the house in 46-degree, 40-degree weather with broken windows, and they have no pants on. I've been to houses in, on the peninsula where kids are naked and pooping on the floor in their house, and then parents are just not engaged. And so when I think to myself, gosh, do I want to ban this thing that is immoral and rage at people and get super upset and let them know that I hate them? Or do I want to help little kids whose parents are so drugged out that they're naked in 40-degree weather pooping on their own floor? Because honestly, a lot of the time, you have to pick one. You do. Because if we're on our Facebooks, if we're on our phones, if we're on our Instagram, hashtagging everyone else sucks, people are going to know that. And then when we try to come back and be like, no, 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 check out Jesus loves you. Like, that, you're Jesus? What does his Instagram look like? You know, what, is his, what are his tweets? Would Jesus rip off some of these tweets? I don't think so. I think a lot of what we tweet in, in the name of justice or something like that, it doesn't, it doesn't help the kingdom of God. And Jesus laid out a really important idea for us. And he says there in Mark chapter 12, he's talking to the Sadducees. And so in verse 28, one of the scribes come up. And, says, and this is Mark 12, 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. That's Jesus and the Sadducees. And seeing that he answered them well, that Jesus answered the Sadducees well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, or uh, our Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. That's one of my favorite lines in the whole Bible, just the irony of that. You know, just the, the scribe being like, oh, good point, Lord of the universe. But he says, uh, and the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. 
And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. So there's a concept here that actually Jesus affirms, but the scribe says. He says, to love God is more important than any other and all the other offerings and sacrifices. Why is that so bold? Because in the Old Covenant, forgiveness came through the smearing of blood, the, the atoning, the atonement, and the, the word there being to blot, the blotting out or the smearing of blood over sin. It all pointed to Christ. That's why sin in the Old Testament was blotted, and in the New Testament it's forgiven, because it's Christ ultimately paid and fulfilled all those sacrifices. Okay? All the sacrifices point to him. But this, this scribe, he says, to love God is more important, great, mega, of greater value than all the sacrifices and offerings you could ever give. And that's a challenge for us. Because we can go to church and we can tithe and we can walk old people across the street or, or do VBS or do all those things. And those are great, important things. But you know what's more important? It's knowing him and loving him. See, the, the interesting thing about the greatest commandment is it's not just a commandment like, you better love God or else... It's not just a commandment. It's literally the life. The commandment is the fulfillment of experiencing true life. It's not just the have to. It's the get to. It's not just the you better. It's the, what causes the enjoyment. It's what gives the peace and the joy and all these things. So when the greatest commandment is to love God, the, the point there isn't like, you better get on board this train or else. That, that is literally the fulfillment of the Christian life, to have a relationship with him, to know him, to love him, to communicate with him, to have fellowship with him. And then after that, from that fellowship of God and that understanding of who he is in his holiness and who we are in our fallen natures and that love that we received and that, that unconditional acceptance in Christ to take that and say, I love my neighbor. The second is just like it, to love your neighbor. So it's not here, but in Luke chapter 10 and verse 29, a lawyer comes on the scene and he tries to challenge Jesus. And, and this is just like us. That's why I like it. This is, he goes, and who is my neighbor? I mean, if that doesn't describe, like, every politician's argument right now, I have no idea. Just this, like, just like, you know, just, oh, so if I have to love my neighbor, well, then who is it? Two doors down? Three doors down? Remember, like, when Peter, for example, he's like, how many times do I forgive my brother? Like, seven times? Seven times do I forgive someone? And Jesus is like, seven times seven. And we're like, or seven times 70. We're like, wow, that's like 490. 491, you're out. You know, I'm just kidding. But, you know, there's this, this whole idea that we, that, that, uh, that we, well, how do I want to say it? It's, it's just, it's important to realize that all the sacrifices, all the things that we do, they're all to be in light of that. And then from that place, that we look at others and we apply that same love, that same forgiveness. The same love that Christ has for us that we experience from him. The second is just like it, the second commandment, to love my neighbor as myself. And so when we come along and we say, Who's my neighbor? It's, it, we're trying to get out of it. We're trying to say, I don't have to, I don't live in this because Jay Inslee. He's not my neighbor. I can malign him. I mean, he's, he's a public guy, clearly. I mean, we wouldn't have Twitter if we weren't supposed to malign people publicly, right? <laughs> so Jesus says, when the, when, the, when the lawyer says, who's my neighbor? It's, it's one of the things I love about Jesus. He doesn't even answer him. He doesn't say, well, he just says, let me tell you a story. He says, there, were, there was a guy, and he was on the road, and he got attacked by robbers, and they beat the pulp out of him. That's the, the not King James Version right there. They, they, they beat him up, and they bloodied him really bad. And then there was a guy that passed by him. The first guy that passed by him was a priest, and he, he walked by him, and it says he went to the other side explicitly. And we've done that, or we've observed it done, where someone's like, ooh, no, 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 I don't want any part of that. And he goes to the other side, a priest. Then he says, a second guy went by, and that guy was a Levite, and he did the same thing from the, the, the family of priests. And then he says, a Samaritan was walking by, and he saw him, and he leaned down, and he cleaned him up, and he picked him up, and he put him on his own donkey, and he walked him to an inn, and he said, here's some money, take care of this guy, I'll be back, and anything on top of what he, uh, bill he ensues, or he, he, he incurs, I will pay that. And so then Jesus asked the lawyer, he says, which one was his neighbor? And they all answered. They say, well, the one that showed him mercy. And he said, that's right. You go and do likewise. See, our neighbor, the, the point is this. Everyone we run into contact with is our neighbor. 
So when Jesus says we ought to love our neighbor and go and do likewise, when we find people, we're there to bind them up. We're there to help them, to clean their wounds. You see the same thing in, 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 uh, in uh, Lazarus. It was very interesting because when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he says, Lazarus, come forth. But he tells the disciples, go take his, his, uh, the, clothes, the, the wrappings off him. So it was Jesus' life that resurrected him, but it was the disciples that, that freed him. So we have a similar calling. We have a heavenly calling. Vote your conscience. Have an opinion. God bless you in that. Hate no one. Love your neighbor. Invest in them. Don't give in to publicly maligning people. We have a mission, and it's to build the kingdom of God, not to salvage the kingdom of the United States. I mean, I'm not trying to be crass, but we know where the states go. We know how it works. We know what the end looks like. And it's not the Constitution. It's not. So let's start building the kingdom now. When you experience outrage or you see something like what happened in Portland or abortion or something to that effect, take that outrage and say, Lord, you're the judge. You're the judge. Will you, will you please execute the justice in your time? My guess is we probably pray that for ourselves. <laughs> I don't know there's too many of us like, Lord, will you please execute justice on me for what I deserve? But we're more than happy to be like, everybody else, they should probably get justice. Me, not so much. So let's take our outrage, let's give it to the Lord. Let's take our, our neighbor, the people we interact with, let's love them. Let's tend them. And when we're tempted to malign or to rage, again, just take that to the Lord. That's what the Christian walk is. That's taking thoughts captive, saying, you know what, Lord? You know what's going on there, and I don't, in whatever scenario it is. And so, Lord, would you please handle that? Now, I'll say this. We can talk about what ifs, and that's fine. I'll be glad to talk about what ifs afterwards. Some what ifs are very valid. What if there's a, per a person in your life that is directly with you, that's causing harm to you or your family. How do I love them? You love them by keeping them away from your family and saying, I love you, but I can't involve you in this to harm me or my family. I'm not going to do that. I love my family too much. There's times, when, there's times where you can do that, and we can talk about what ifs, but we can still vote our conscience. We can still observe justice, even to, the, to capital punishment, and we can say, God, love that person to the end. And then we can be able to shed the hate and the, the, the venom that can come out of our hearts. And when we do that, what we'll find is, well, personally, I think we'll find joy. We'll find relief. Because all of a sudden, everything isn't my business anymore. All of a sudden, God can handle it. He can handle all the naughty tweets that have ever been tweeted. He can handle all the rage that's ever been raged. And you know what? I hope that those people get the same mercy that I've obtained and, and, and to move forward in that way. Because you have a great ministry. <laughs> you really do. God has great things for you. And, and to, to build his kingdom and to be kind and to love people and your family and others and all those things. With that, I'm just going to give a couple last announcements. So we have a mask mandate on Monday. And so a lot of, and understandably so, a lot of people have said, what are we going to do as a church? Uh, we're going to do what we did before, and that is we're going to ask you to love your neighbor more than yourself. Um, and so what does that mean? Well, it means that we're not going to demand anything. What we're going to ask is that you obey the law in a church that has a Bible that says we should obey the law. That's what we're going to ask you to do. If you want to come in and you say, I'm not going to wear a mask, and you're stupid for saying so, that's fine. Uh, you're welcome to do that. Uh, we're not going to hassle you about it. Um, I would encourage you, if that's your current attitude, that you would consult Jesus on that and ask him what he thinks of that. So we're just going to ask people to, to wear your mask when you're coming in, wear your mask when you're getting coffee. If you have a, a physical issue, don't wear a mask. We're asking people that don't wear masks to love and to cherish and to take care of people that do wear masks and not judge them. And we're asking people that wear a mask to love and to cherish and to not judge people that don't wear a mask. 
We're asking you to do what the Bible says. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not trying to be a smart aleck. I'm really not. I'm just trying to lay this out as simply as I can, that we have no stake here. Last time we introduced masks, we got some feedback uh, that was a little bit on the negative side, that we were cowering and that we didn't, we don't, you know, we're succumbing to false news and we're all, the, we're not. I have no idea if masks work. If you're a Republican, they don't. If you're a Democrat, they do. Same with the vaccine. It just matters what news channel you watch. Isn't that weird? And to think that the church is dividing over that? That the church is dividing over what Tucker Carlson says or Rachel Maddow? That's embarrassing. It really is. Let them say what they're going to say. Their life is to ours is the life of a gnat. It really is. Not that they're worthless people, but the, the, the vaccine or the not vaccine or the mask or the not mask. I, I'm not trying to come off frustrated, but I'm like, literally in my mind, I'm like, for the love of God, people, we have one mission. And it's to love each other. And you could do that with or without a vaccine. Just don't ask anybody if it bothers you. <laughs> you know, I'm not trying to be a jerk here. I'm really not. I'm saying, like, let us at Ocean Beach Christian Fellowship Lay down our rights and be like Paul and just say, you know what? Everything that I'm doing in my life is so that anybody can walk through this door and they can know that Christ loves them. And not my opinion about masks or vaccines or Joe Biden or Inslee or policy or Afghanistan or any of those things. We feel for the people of Afghanistan. It's done. We pray for them. They're getting slaughtered. It's terrible. Maligning people publicly about that is not going to make other people go, I want to go to that church. Their Jesus that loves everybody is really manifested through them mocking all of the state. It's just not real. So our policies that we're trying to come up with, it's not because we fear the state. I think any one of our elders would gladly, like William Tyndale, run to the stake to be burned. I really do. I think those guys love Christ. We're just, honestly, without trying to sound pathetic, we're just trying to do our best. Amen. That's all we're trying to do. And the best thing that we can come up with is do everything you can do that shows someone else that you love them. That's the best thing we can come up with. And so, <laughs> thanks. So, you know, at the end of the day, that's what our mask rule is going to be. Please wear them when you're up and about. Now, we're not asking people to wear them. And this is where the question is, how does civil disobedience work? Right? Because there's really no place in the Bible where it says, here is when you civilly disobey your government. They just kind of did it sometimes. You know what I mean? So we're, we're kind of caught in that same question. Like, how do we civilly disobey the government? Because the government would say, we want you to wear masks all the time. So we're at a point where we say, you know what? We're not going to ask anywhere to, anybody to wear a mask in the worship time in these times. Because we want you to be able to sing to the Lord. And if you're sucking that thing down your throat and it's causing you to cough or whatever it is, you can't do it, then don't wear it. If that makes you uncomfortable as someone who wants to wear a mask and is concerned about it, and I'm not even, I'm not minimizing that position. I'm just saying if that's where you're at or if you're sitting next to someone who has a mask on during the worship, don't hassle them. Maybe move a chair over so they can feel more comfortable. We don't have to send each other links about how good masks are or not. We can just go, cool, that's where you're at. I'm fine with that. That's all we're asking people to do. We love you guys. I love you guys. I want to reiterate again. I'm not mad because I shared this. I'm excited because what lies in you, the Bible calls a treasure, which is the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ that you possess in your earthly vessel. And the fact that we have that treasure to give to other people, it bums me out when I... Or, or people that I'm immediately affiliated with diminish that with things that are temporal and passing away. Because our life is, the life that we've been given by Christ is indestructible. And it's the most valuable thing that's on this planet. And ironically, the only thing on this planet that's going to last is your soul. And the soul of the person next to you. That's it. The Constitution is not going into the glory. You know, the Oval Office doesn't go to heaven. None of that. Just the soul's. So let's prioritize this whole. Amen? Father, thank you for your word and for the examples we have in our Lord Jesus and in Paul.
Lord, we thank you for the power of the gospel and its might. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to share that. Lord, I pray that we would be those. Uh, help us to, help me to really have a broken heart for the lost. Lord, help us to, to look to those who are outside and to esteem one another as more excellent than ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would bring people into our church to get saved. I pray that you would bring people to know you. I pray you bring people to be discipled. I pray that you would breathe more and more life into what we're doing. And I pray, Lord, that our community would be changed, not through ordinance, but through life, eternal life. So, Lord, we just cast our cares on you because you care for us. And we're trusting you to do great things. Thank you, Lord, for these folks. I pray your spirit would go with them today and that your, your kingdom would grow uh, in, in our little neck of the world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.